Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkan Kazarian. Today we have Connor Boyack, president and founder of the Libertas Institute in Utah, who was one of the driving forces behind, I, in my opinion, one of the most progressive Fourth Amendment surveillance reforms on state level in the history of America. Connor, thank you for joining us. Wow. How about that intro? I'm, I'm going to write that down on my business card. Thanks for having me. Um, before we dive into the what's going on and what was the reform, why do you say Libertas in student, not Libertas, is my <laughs> question. That's the pressing question everyone wants to know. When I set it up seven or eight years ago, I asked a couple professors of you know language, I can't remember their, their titles, and then, how would you pronounce this thing? A lot of people don't know that Libertas or Libertas or however you pronounce it, it's the Roman goddess of liberty. So the Statue of Liberty, that's her name, and, and most people don't know that she has a name. Um, but, of course, Latin's a dead language, and so I guess based on the construction of, of the phonetics and whatever and how you would say it, there were two schools of thought, right? It may and probably would have been pronounced libertas, or you could pronounce it libertas. And I kind of, I liked, it sounded more suave to me, so we, we went with libertas. You know, that's, that's exactly the same answer that my father, a linguist, gave me, a linguistics professor who teaches dead languages, so you're off the hook. Wow, okay, good. All right, I'll tell others. All right, so let's dive in. Before we talk about the law, um, I think a preemptive um, thing would be to cover what's going on in the legislation and in case law before uh, the law that you supported passed. Sure, sure. So um, today we're talking about third-party doctrine, which uh, in a nutshell means that who has control over the information that a third party has about you? when it comes to government, and how can they access that information? That's right. So, Connor, um, can you tell me what's going on with third-party doctrine, what has been uh, the case law up to now? Yeah, briefly, uh, and I'll just summarize it. Uh, the problem has been that as things have progressed nationally and at a state level, uh, there's kind of consensus legally and judicially around this idea that if there's data on your computer, data on your phone, then that is subject to the warrant requirement. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that way for cell phones as in a search incident to arrest, for example. Uh, and so the laws are fairly well protecting your content on your device. Uh, officers have to get a warrant. Now, tangentially, there's other real interesting issues there in terms of, well, you know, biometric access, right? And, and, if uh, can they compel you to to look at your phone or put a fingerprint or enter your password? That's kind of a Fifth Amendment issue, uh, blurring in with a Fourth Amendment. But but broadly speaking, if you're let's say you take take a photo of of something incriminating and it's stored only on your phone, law enforcement has got to get a warrant uh, to get it. The the laws are are pretty good on on that. Depends on different jurisdictions, but broadly speaking, what the law has been very poor on as a result of decades of U.S. Supreme Court precedent is this notion of the third-party doctrine. And that is, uh, Ashkin, as soon as you upload your photo to the cloud, to a third-party server, to the AT&T server, Verizon, Apple, Google, Dropbox, whoever, the U.S. Supreme Court has held that you have a lower presumption of privacy in that information because otherwise you would have kept it to yourself. If you really considered it private, you would have held on to it. But because you kind of gave it to a third party, that must mean that you don't consider it as private and therefore your, your um, content is subject to a lower uh, standard for the government to be able to access it. This arose out of banking records and some of these cases that worked up to the 
U.S. Supreme Court. So, so for decades, it's been that way. This third-party doctrine has been an exception to the warrant requirement where the government could just write a subpoena and say, hey, you know, AT&T, give us the information for Connor. We want to be able to get it. We don't need a warrant. And then AT&T would just give it to him. And so that's, that's the problem from our perspective that we're trying to correct and make sure that there's a judicial intervention to make sure that the government has probable cause. Would the defendant or the suspect in a case even be notified that that information was turned over to the authorities? Great, great point. The analogy there is think if, if the authorities wanted to go to that defendant's home, they wanted to search his, his you know, office or his basement, then yes, they would give notice, right? They would come and say, here's a copy of the warrant and you would be able to know what to challenge and, and the different aspects of it. And that is a, a gaping hole in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence and application from our perspective when it comes to the digital equivalents when they're going after the data. So as we'll get into the law, our law does require notice, um, and we think that that's super important so that people even know that this is happening. That's great. Okay. Well, um, there was one case in the Supreme Court recently that the decision kind of moved the needle forward on protecting um, electronic data from being accessed without a warrant. And when we say warrant, obviously, I know our listeners know what a warrant is, but I want to just make sure they understand that when we say warrant, we mean a court is, has to approve the search. And oh. that is the check on the executive power. That is part of the check and balances mechanisms that this country is built on. Yes. So the Carpenter case, Connor. Yeah. What is it about? So this guy, uh, back in, I believe it was 2011, Mr. Carpenter and his associates were alleged to have been uh, robbing a radio shack. And the FBI was able to go to his cell phone company and demand the cell phone location information of Mr. Carpenter. And they, they got several months worth compiling over 13,000 locations that he had been at, including apparently the precise location of the radio shack at the time of of uh, of of the the robbery, and so they used a phone to investigate a robbery that was involving phones. Pers- <laughs> yes, exactly. A very circuitous, and so, uh, but they did it without a warrant, and that was the key uh, issue at, at stake. And so, the ACLU represented Mr. Carpenter, and they challenged it on that basis, arguing that, hey, look, this is his location. This is, it's not his content. It's not like he took a photo or he wrote a a Word document. He wasn't producing the content and storing it on a third party. Slightly different issue, but this is um, third party generated information. In other words, the, uh, the cell phone company is producing the record and maintaining the record about your phone. And, um, Nonetheless, the ACLU challenged it and said that is private information and the government should have to get a warrant. And this summer, in a split five to four ruling, uh, the Supreme Court agreed, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed and said, no, your, your cell phone location information, even when held by a third party, is subject to the warrant requirement. The government does need probable cause and you do have to get that judicial check. All right. So we have a Supreme Court case, the most recent one that is kind of moving this discussion forward. And if you ask me, a person who is working more on um, federal level of issue of different technology policy issues, but at the same time, always looking to states, I would have not in a million years thought that the push uh, for better uh, protection of our citizens through uh, laws or precedents would be from a state. So what happened? What inspired this movement in Utah? 
So partially what inspired it is the U.S. Supreme Court itself in a previous uh, ruling. This was Riley versus California. Justice Alito had this quote that for our team was like the, the, the clarion call, right? Like, don't wait for the feds. Don't wait for the Supreme Court. Here's what he says in, in the Riley case. It would be very unfortunate if privacy protection in the 21st century were left primarily to the federal courts using the blunt instrument of the Fourth Amendment. Legislatures, he continues, elected by the people are in a better position than we are to assess and respond to the changes that have already occurred and those that almost certainly will take place in the future, right? That was, that was amazing because to us, it was a, a signal that states should step forward. In fact, the, the Carpenter case that we were just discussing, the Chief Justice John Roberts, who authored the majority opinion, uh, followed the same kind of line of thinking. So he said um, in the opinion, he says, legislation is much preferable to the development of an entirely new body of Fourth Amendment case law. So the court itself is signaling to us in the states saying, stop waiting for us, right? Here we have cell phones in our pocket, mobile tracking of nearly every individual in the country, right? The the government can eavesdrop, access all this information. Why are you waiting two or three decades for the right case to come with the right fact pattern that gets the right attorney that finally makes its way up to the Supreme Court when you've had the government getting away with this stuff forever. Why not nip it in the bud, work at the state level where things are a little bit more dynamic, you can respond very quickly and try and address the problem. So to answer your question, why we got interested, it's because the court has been calling for states like us to do exactly that. So we decided to step forward. Are there any laws of this nature in Utah that are similar and uh, protective of individuals' uh, privacy from law enforcement? I know one. I know that in Utah, if law enforcement needs, uh, you need to get a warrant to use drones for mm-hmm. surveillance. Yeah. So, is there anything similar to that, or was this the only one kind of in the? Yeah, that was that was a bill that we also uh, did uh, several years ago with the local ACLU chapter, uh, as we did for this bill. And uh, and to your question, there was another one. In fact, it was the law that we amended this year. So there was an underlying law that we passed five years ago in 2014. At the time. ACLU and EFF and others were pointing to it as kind of the model, the best, uh, most strongly uh, protective bill of data privacy. And now it's an ALEC model bill, um, and and uh, other states are being encouraged to adopt this as well. And this is what deals with the content on your phones and your location information. So this is saying you have to get a warrant if it's either data stored on your phone, if it's the location about your device, or, and I, I uh, should not have left this out, your audience is probably very familiar with these devices called stingrays, where law enforcement is able to capture information out of the air and be able to track where phones are and so forth. And so our law and now the model, the ALEC model bill as well that other states are adopting also applies to what's called transmitted data. And so in other words, if, I, if you're near me and I am uh, texting you something unsecurely, just plain text or through Bluetooth or whatever technology we're directly transferring information, um, other people can capture that. You can have packet sniffers and, and other devices that are capturing things um, in the air. And so our, our law, the underlying law five years ago, also requires a warrant to intercept that transmitted data that's in the air. So we had uh, things pretty well clamped down, Good a good uh, law five years ago that we've now built on to add the third-party piece. 
It's amazing that an organization like Alec and ACLU are working together on something, right? It means there is a support from every side of a political aisle, and this is not a partisan issue. This is a question of protecting the citizens from the government and from government um, abusing its power. Yeah, we, now, if I can just add to that, I think you're exactly right. We've seen total bipartisanship on this. There's been no shortage of support, no matter the party or ideology. So I think that's a, a great point to bring up. And so this current law, let's dive into it. Uh, what's the name? What was the history? When was it drafted? So, you know, we started this about a year and a half ago with our sponsor, Representative Hall. Uh, and when we started, we thought to amend the const our state constitution, which has an equivalent, uh, like the Fourth Amendment, there's an equivalent in our state constitution, and I think every state constitution. And so we thought, you know, where it talks about like, uh, persons and papers and effects, why don't we update that to include electronic data and privacy? Just to be very clear that the constitutional standard also covers data and privacy. We decided to move away from the constitutional amendment to do instead a statutory change so that we could be a little bit more dynamic and very specific about it and, and be very explicit in detail rather than kind of having broad constitutional language. The main reason why is because, sure, you amend the Constitution, but then you have to wait for the case law to develop to make clear what the Constitution says and means. We wanted to be very explicit about what we meant. So our bill this year is called simply um, Electronic Information or Data Privacy. It's House Bill 57 in Utah in 2019 sponsored by Representative Hall. And as I said, we took that good law we passed five years ago dealing with the uh, protecting the content on your devices or being transmitted in the air or your location information, and then we built on it to add in protections for, uh, for the data that you upload to a third party or the content that that third party generates about your use of their service. So are there any other provisions in it that you would say are crucial? Um, so one thing that we had to deal with is when we started passing this law, you know, we, oh man, the law enforcement community came unglued. I mean, we had so many meetings with the attorney general's office and with law enforcement and the law enforcement dealing with child pornographers. And, uh, we had companies coming at us. We had the tech companies, you know, getting all worried because if, oh, we just want things to be the same in every state. You know, if Utah steps forward and changes this, we have to do things differently. We just want everyone to be on the same standard, which is an argument for federal reform so that, you know, at the drop of a hat, then it's the same everywhere. Um, but we had to part ways with them and say, no, we're doing this. And so let's get you to a point where you're okay with it. Because under federal law, there's a, a law called ECPA, which does have some of the standards for data privacy, not third-party doctrine, but for uh, content on your phones and so forth like that. But so, ECPA reform still hasn't really happened. Precisely. I've in, yeah, I've been in tech policy in D.C. for three years now, and I was, you know, part of the tech policy community researching it back in law school, mm -hmm. and it's still not here. And I've been hearing about ECPA reform since 2012, I want to say. Exactly. Um, so the federal play and the federal complications that happen when you try to pass legislation, you know, it's not something that should stop the laboratories of democracy uh, from moving forward and moving the whole country forward. That was our argument. And especially if we can get more states to adopt uh, standards like we now have in Utah, that can create the ground pressure to actually get 
some federal reform done, much like we're seeing right now with marijuana. You know, all over the place you had states leading out, and now the federal government is finally getting serious about a topic that they've long ignored. I think the same thing can apply to uh, data privacy. Here's an example. So in ECPA, a, a third-party provider is able to voluntarily disclose information that they believe uh, involves the commission of a crime. So let's say that, Ash, uh, on this podcast right now, let's say we were live streaming it and we start revealing details about a crime and there's some AI algorithm or some content moderator who catches wind of that, they can then just go take that to law enforcement and say, here you go. Um, we narrowed that uh, as one of our exceptions. So we say, you got to get a warrant no matter if it's on Connor's device, if it's in the cloud, whatever, you got to get a warrant. And then we have the reasonable exceptions, like if there's a judicial exception to a warrant requirement and, and things like that that are standard across the board legal exceptions to the warrant requirement. And, and so we matched ECPA in the regard that we said, okay, look, uh, third-party provider, let's say you know Facebook, if you uh, inadvertently discover Connor's content that he's Connor's doing a, a Facebook live and you inadvertently come across it. Um, ECPA says, well, if it's involving the commission of a crime, you can release it. And we said, well, wait a minute, you can have all sorts of crimes that are irrelevant, victimless, meaningless. And so we said, we'll give you felonies. If, it, if it's a felony, you can release it after you inadvertently discovered it. Or if it's a misdemeanor involving, you know, physical violence, uh, sexual abuse or honesty. In other words, there's a ton of misdemeanors out there that are like if I'm Facebook live streaming and I'm jaywalking, right? Does does the third party provider really need to disclose that? Should law enforcement really be able to get it? So we wanted to carve out a lot of the little stuff. So we do have some reasonable exceptions, but we've narrowed them far greater than uh, federal law was allowing third party providers to do in a way that protects the data privacy rights of users here in Utah. One thing that I didn't mention that I think is very important for our listeners to know is that this law passed both chambers of Utah State Legislature unanimously, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, now to that point, I, I need to make clear that when we first introduced the bill, as I pointed out earlier, we had a ton of opposition. So we had, oh, easily 50, 60 hours worth of meetings and refining and tweaking to protect what we were trying to do, the substance is all still there, but we, we said things in a different way that resolved concerns. So for example, this applies only to the criminal context, to a law enforcement investigation or prosecution, because we had all these civil guys come and say, wait a minute, we do subpoenas right now um, all across the board. You're saying we now need to get a warrant just to do a civil you know, investigation or administrative action? We said, no, we're only concerned about law enforcement and criminal justice system. So we'll, we'll make clear that that carves you out. Or in our first draft, we said, uh, let's use Ash as an example. Ash, you, you, the document that you upload to Dropbox, you are presumed to be the owner and you retain the presumption of privacy. And that was important language to us. But then law enforcement said, well, wait a minute. There are going to be people who upload things that aren't theirs. And your statute is sent, your proposal is saying, that they're presumed to, that's a presumption that the prosecutor now has to overcome in court to say, well, wait a minute, she stole the document or, you know, uh, hacked it from somebody else and then she uploaded it. That doesn't make her an owner. So we moved away from that language and, and lots of things like that where we ended up at a good place that still simply says, with those reasonable exceptions for everything else, go get a warrant across the board. We don't care if it's Connor's content, if, if it's the content that the third party provider created about Connor, you just got to get a warrant, period. And so we brought everyone to a point where we resolved their concerns. They ended up being okay. We had consensus language that even to this day, we're still amazed that our law enforcement community signed off on this thing because it's a very aggressive law. 
But to your point, yes, once we reached that consensus point, it flew through the legislature and passed unanimously. Governor of Utah Herbert signed the law just yesterday, March 27th. Yeah, he, he did sign the law. Um, it is now binding. It actually technically goes into effect in mid-May, uh, but, but it's signed, it's passed, it's done. And now we're very eager through your podcast, through every, any outlet we can find, encouraging other states to get this on their radar and get working on this as well. I mean, we've been very positive, partially because I am a surveillance reform advocate. You guys are doing an amazing work, and I think this is truly a bipartisan issue. But I wanted to ask you, do you expect any challenge on a more federal level of your law? And what I mean by that is, do you think someone is going to try to take this through courts and say that um, it somehow isn't in um, accordance with some federal laws or that somehow it isn't in accordance with other Utah laws? I don't know what they're going to come up with because all the research I've done, I think it's pretty solid law that shouldn't be overturned. But are there any concerns that you have? We think we're safe. And let me explain why. A few years ago, uh, so Utah, like a lot of states, has a controlled substance database, which contains the prescription information about everyone who goes to the doctor and what they take. That's very private information. And uh, we got a law passed here in Utah. This was the ACLU uh, leading out on this uh, here in our state, requiring a warrant for law enforcement, state, local, federal. Like, hey, if you want this information in Utah's database, you got to get a warrant. Well, the feds, this is to your question, they challenged it. They said, whoa, 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 we don't want to have to go get a warrant. We want to just be able to access the data. They took it to court and won. And Utah, the state of Utah, decided not to appeal. So as it stands now, that information, you have to get a warrant if you're a state or local law enforcement officer in that database, and the feds can get whatever they want. So for this law, recognizing that the state of Utah cannot bind federal authorities on what they can get from third-party providers, Utah can't say, hey, FBI, if you're doing an investigation and you want to get information from Facebook, you got to get a warrant. That's just not the place of the Utah legislature. So our law does only apply to state and local law enforcement. But the idea then is, as we mentioned earlier, if let's say 12 other states next year adopt similar laws and then 18 states the year after that, that you know, we create this groundswell effect over time where all these states doing things their way, it's going to send a signal that this is the expectation. And that's, I think, when we start seeing some ECPA reform when we get that ground pressure in, in place. I was going to say snowball effect. As a Russian, I'm more into snow, but yes. <laughs> I guess my last question would be, as a rallying cry for other states and other um, groups and organizations to get involved in this on a state level, what would be your advice? What would be your experience that you would want to share with them? So the first thing is the pitch. Just start working on this. Do this. Uh, as we said, it's bipartisan. We've gotten all sorts of praise. The news media has loved covering this. It's a sexy topic. Everyone presumes that this stuff is private. Everyone thinks that when I upload you know, that uh, Snapchat video that the government isn't going to be able to just store it on its server and, and use it in a criminal investigation or whatever. So um, it, there's good juju, right? Like there's good, uh, good opportunity here to work on it. So work on it. That, that, the pitch, first of all, is just work on it. Second thing is now there's a model law. So if you look up House Bill 57 in Utah 2019 or reach out to us at Libertas Institute and let's chat, we have model language that we can share and hopefully we'll take it to Alec and other groups to start turning this into model adoptable policy that people can do. But you don't have to wait for anyone. Just look at what we've done. Work with legislators in your uh, state that are tech-minded, privacy-minded, civil liberties-minded, 
and just get the ball rolling. And we are very eager to help and share that direct institutional knowledge of you know things that we did. We worked with the ACLU affiliate, which is a great idea on a topic like this. There's uh, because coming out the gate, we're very libertarian. Uh, and we're more on the right, and then the ACLU is on the left. And so working together on this coming out just very clearly shows, guys, this isn't a partisan issue. This is a common sense issue. Let's get it done. Uh, and so my pitch, my invitation is we need a lot more states doing this. So whoever's listening out there, let's work together and make it happen. My uh, pitch line this year is 2019 is the Super Bowl for privacy lawyers. And partially uh, the consumer privacy is getting a lot of attention because of a bunch of scandals that happen and breaches and overarching fear that the public has um, against the big tech. I'm not addressing that right now per se, but I'm addressing the fact that this fear should be also channeled into fear against government um, abusing their powers or accessing information or storing information and searching your information without you even knowing. So hopefully our listeners and um, who are just, you know, everyday citizens, or maybe they were going for a think tank or a corporation, will get involved more this, with this issue. Contact you. We'll leave um, a link to your website and a link to the law in the show notes. Great. And um, any parting words? Um, you know, we just feel honored to be the first state to do this and amazed that no one else has done this before. It actually ended up being not that hard once we reached that sweet spot after all the negotiations. But we're just very excited this has passed. Uh, we think the appetite is there. I think you're right. This is going to be the year for reform. Uh, so anyone out there who's in a position to help make that happen in your in your state, in your area, uh, get going and let's work together. We'd be happy to be a part of it. There you have it, team. If you believe it, that it will happen. You just got to imagine it and go work towards that goal. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you back soon and report back on more reforms and uh, and very forward-thinking technological ideas that you guys are going to work on. And um, you can subscribe to us on every major platforms platform. Please leave us a review so others can find the show. Connor, thank you for joining us again. Thanks for having me. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.